blessing to be with you and to sing praise to Jesus together and thanks to our Father God. Um, we're going to continue in the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And just to give a little bit um, of background, if you perhaps are, are new visiting with us, we're especially glad that you're here this morning. Uh, but we're going straight through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, um, and he writes uh, so that... Uh, people can be sure of the things that they've heard about Jesus and so that their faith can be uh, firm in, in Jesus. And so that's his purpose. And so um, what we see is him, you know, he's telling a story, but he's also laying out an argument, if that makes sense. He's telling the story of the life of Christ, but he's doing so in such a way to hit the key points that show that Jesus is um, the Son of God, that he's sent from God, that he is the one who has the authority um, to uh, that he was a, you know, first he was one that was appointed. We see that in his baptism and his temptation um, in his beginning of his public ministry. Uh, but then we see also that he's the one with authority. And we really saw that last week as we saw Jesus um, teaching in the temple and talking about how the things from the book of Isaiah refer to himself, um, about being the one who is going to um, you know, heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. And so we see that. Um, clearly in, in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 5, Luke is just going to kind of continue on with that argument and laying it, laying it out of who Jesus is. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into that uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here together to worship you. Um, we thank you for this time uh, that we have uh, to look into your word and to learn from it. We pray that you would teach us from it, Lord, but not just that, that you would also change our hearts and our, our minds as they need to be changed this morning, God. For those of us who know you, we pray that you would make us more like your son Jesus, and for those who don't know you yet, we pray that this morning come to fuller understanding of who you are and what you've done. And so, Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you lived among us, and that we can see in your life that you truly are the Savior and the King. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so let's just begin by reading the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 5. And it says, So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the Sea of Galilee and saw two boats standing by the sea. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and told the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they, which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, 
who were the partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. It's a pretty amazing story. We saw um, last week in Luke 4 at the end um, of the chapter with the, the people being angry at the words of Jesus. At first, they're, they're kind of happy to hear what he has to say, but then when he speaks a word against them, um, they get angry with him, and they drive him to the edge of a cliff. You know, the crowd presses in on him as if they were going to throw him off, but then in his power, he just walks through the middle of them and walks on out. But that, that was a multitude of people there doing that. And then here we see a multitude, but they're not, they're not um, looking to destroy him by any means. But as Jesus said, in these other places, people would hear him and would listen to him. And they're pressing in on him because they want to hear his message. They want to know from him, what do you have to tell us? And when a crowd like that, you know, imagine everybody trying to get a little closer, everybody pushing the one in front of them, a little bit more, trying to get a little closer. And pretty soon, Jesus is at the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and there's nowhere really to go. And so he gets, you know, does a logical thing, gets into the boat, and teaches them from the boat because the people aren't going to all get into the, you know, the water um, after him. And so he's able to kind of control things there, and he does teach them. And you see that his care for the multitude. Jesus, we see time and time again, he cares for the multitudes of people. But then he also, you also see him take time with specific individuals uh, to reach into their lives. And that's what he's doing here with Simon, even though Simon doesn't realize what's going on. When he says, Simon, let's go out and go fishing. And you can imagine Simon Peter and the others, it's like, man, they've been fishing all night long, and they're fishing with these nets that are, you know, heavy, and it's toilsome, and it's a lot of work, and they've done it all night, and they really haven't caught much of anything, and that was the best time to catch the fish, and now Jesus wants them to go out in this time where it's not the ideal time to go catch fish, and he wants them to do this, and so he says, you know, he gives his reasoning like, you know, Lord, we've, we've done this all night, but at your word, I'll let down the net. And so even there, you see an understanding already. Um, remember that in chapter 4, um, and this is Simon, this is Simon Peter, who eventually becomes the Apostle Peter. Um, but this is Simon who had seen his mother-in-law you know, healed. And so he knows that Jesus has authority and has, has power, but he still hasn't fully come to an understanding of who Jesus is. He's in the process of figuring it out. And that's instructive because we see that same thing today in many people's lives. Many people are in process of trying to figure out who is Jesus. You know, is he a good man? Is he a prophet? Is he more than that? Who, who is he really? And so Simon, I think, is still in this process of trying to fill this, figure this out. And then he does let down the nets, and there's, you know, every fisherman's dream. The nets are full, so much so that the the boats are about to to sink. They call over their partners, um, James and John, and the sons of Zebedee, and ask them to, you know, to help. And so, I mean, all together they fill up these two, you know, these multiple boats full of fish and finally get them back. But before that, even, 
you know, Peter's reaction to this, Simon Peter's reaction to this is really incredible because he's not like, you know, who, you know I think a lot of people are like, woohoo, we caught a bunch of fish. We're going we're gonna to make a lot of money and we're going to eat well. You know, I mean, that, but that's not his, his perspective at all. It's, you know, he basically just falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so you see a further under, he's, getting, he's getting a deeper and fuller understanding of who Jesus is and the power that Jesus has, that even the fish obey him. And he recognizes that in comparison to himself. And one of the really great things about Simon that we see throughout the Gospels is that he's, he's honest. You know, he has a tendency to not be an extremist, but he's He's a very honest, transparent person. You know, he wears his heart on his sleeve. You, you see him, you know, if, I think if he, was, if he was a college football coach in these days, you know, he would be the guy that was just, you know, all over the, the microphone with all the great sound bites because of the, uh, he would just, you know, put his heart out there. Whatever it was at that particular time is what you're going to, that's what you're going to get. What's on the inside is what you're going to get on the outside with him. And what's on the inside right here is he understands who he is, especially in comparison to Jesus. He understands that he is a sinful person. And that's really beautiful. Um, And it's, you know, and even though he doesn't really have the, you know, he doesn't have the right um, conclusion of the matter, because he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, you know, which perhaps would have been better for you to save me. (laughs) You know, I'm a sinful man. But he he doesn't feel at all worthy to be, you know, in the presence, you know, of Jesus. And, you know, we need people like Peter to have that perspective. For a person to come to Jesus in the first place, there has to be that understanding of, I'm a sinful person. You know, I'm not a really good person who could just, you know, add Jesus onto my life and make myself a, a little bit better and even, or even more awesome or even more cool because... Now I've got Jesus. No, it's not that way at all. It's, Lord, I'm a sinful person. But this depart from me is what we have to sometimes help people with because sometimes people feel so unworthy and so unlovable that even with God, they don't think God would even want to save them. I remember the first time I ever experienced that, I was in, I think it was either seventh or eighth grade, and um, I went to a Christian school, but there were a lot of people there without Jesus, and uh, one of the guys in my class, I was talking to him about Jesus, and he was just like, no, I've done too many bad things. And he had kind of come from a rough background, but you're also thinking, dude, man, like, we're in seventh, eighth grade, you've done too many, like, what what are you, you know, there's a little bit of there, like, what are you talking about? But there... But the point here is that that attitude and that perspective that he had, even at that young age, of he was already just too far gone for Jesus. Maybe perhaps some of that was he didn't think he could put on the right outward appearance to look okay for everybody or to look like a person who was right with God. Because unfortunately... You know, even today in churches all over our country, 
or church meetings, we should say, because the church is really people, not buildings. We mess that up all the time. But, you know, people going to buildings all the time today and putting on the outward appearances and the outward clothes, putting on the, you know, whatever that group is wearing, you know, I'm going to wear, I'm going to wear that, whether it's casual or formal, but I'm going to look put together and I'm going to have the right expression on my face so that, you know, I'm, I look to be okay and everybody else looks to be okay. And so we have a, you know, rooms full of people pretending to be all well. What does that accomplish? If it's not real, if it's not real, what does it accomplish? If there's not the spiritual reality. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But of course, Jesus doesn't do what he asks. Praise God for that. But he says to him, In verse 10, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. He basically tells Peter, you know, don't be afraid because he sees that fear in him, that fear of the the unknown, that fear of what what would even mean to be with Jesus. And Jesus tells him not to be afraid, but from from now on, you're going to catch people. He he gives him a, a different future. And he gives him a bigger future, really. He gives him a bigger future. And notice this, when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Now, it's really interesting because, you know, we talk about, you know, oh, Peter, James, and John, you know, as they were fishermen as if that was just like a simple thing. But these are really, I mean, if you think about it, these are small business owners who have built a business. You know, and they've got their, in a, you know, some sort of arrangement here, a cooperative or whatever that, hey, somebody might have a bad night fishing and somebody might have a good night fishing, but we're in this together. You know, they're business partners and they, you know, they've got their own insurance in that way. And these are actually guys who are thoughtful. I mean, we take them, you know, as many times they're taken as being, you know, ignorant or something to that effect. But I don't think that's really a fair um, assessment of them because, I think that really comes from an ivory tower sort of looking down on everyone who works with their hands as opposed to with their brains. Um, is where that mentality comes from that then we take it and go, well, you know, Jesus just took these really dumb guys and did something with them. Well, I don't think they were really dumb guys. They were small business owners who, you know, were thoughtful and had a plan and knew how to provide for their families and we're setting things up, you know, for the next generation. I'm pretty confident they could read and write and all of those sorts of things as well. Um, So, you know, people, we can kind of have a a wrong idea, you know, of them. But, you know, Jesus took people from different walks and different places of life, and we'll continue, you know, to see that even um, next week as we look at the call of, of Matthew. But what we have here is these people who are saying, yes, we have this business. Yes, we have what we had, had set up for our, our lives and for our families and for our future, and they're willing to give all of that up to go into the unknown, to follow Jesus, to become fishers of people. And it's really powerful. 
really powerful. And I don't want to in any way undermine the sacrifice that they made because they are giving up something here. They already, I mean, they're not, they're not like, you know, a college student who doesn't know what they, don't, what they want to do. Some college students really know what they want to do, and other college students don't know what they want to do. They're not like a college student who has no clue what they want to do and then says, well, okay, I'll do this because I think Jesus wants me to do that. Now, these guys are actually established. They are set with what, they're going, what their, their occupation is and with what they're doing and what their life plans and goals and everything are, and then, boom, they meet Jesus, and that gets radically altered. So they, what they're giving up is significant, and I don't want us to undermine that by thinking that these are just some dumb guys that Jesus picked up off the street. Because it's not that way. They forsook all and followed him. Their sacrifice was great. Their sacrifice was great. It's also interesting how they didn't just try to tag Jesus in. You know, none of them came to Jesus in this situation and go, okay, Jesus, you understand now. If you become partners with us, we can set up this, like, fishing empire because basically you just call the fish into the nets. We, like, throw them on. We can set up franchises all over the Middle East. Like, (laughs) we have got this. We have got this now. You know, they they, they they didn't look at it that way. And, And many people do that. You know, they think... It's like, okay, I'm doing X, so now if I just, you know, have a little bit of Jesus in what I do, then it'll blow up and be super successful. And so then you get into this deal where if it's not, you know, you get into this whole prosperity gospel stuff where then, well, you know, you just didn't have enough faith and that's why your business failed. If you had a little more Jesus in there, you really would have done well. You know, there's more to it than all of that, and we just need to be really careful about those sort of things, that sort of mentality. But that sort of mentality that can come into all of our lives, where instead of us looking at it from the perspective of how does Jesus want us to follow him, we can very easily turn it to how can Jesus amplify what I'm doing to where I'm the center of the story and Jesus is the add-on to that versus Jesus is the center of the story and we are working to give him glory and him honor and however he sees fit. In this, we also, there's some things that are said that aren't explicitly said, but they're implicitly said. There's a whole multitude of people here and he didn't, Jesus did not ask all of them to leave their businesses. There are lots of small business owners in that crowd and Jesus didn't ask all of them to leave their businesses. Why? I mean, just practicality. If everybody leaves their business, who's going to support the ones that didn't leave their business? You know, that did leave the business. So, there, you know, there's a different calling for different people at different times even. And we see this even today where God calls someone to do something. You know, he may call you, you know, to take two, three, four, five years, whatever, and just devote it strictly to him without other sorts of occupational work. He might ask you to do that for a lifetime, and he might ask you not to do that at all. Are you okay with whatever one that is? Are you okay with being Simon Peter 
in that group of people, or are you okay with being one in the crowd who goes back and continues to be faithful in their business, provides for their family, and supports God's work? Because everybody can't be what Simon Peter was called to do here. Also might want to remember that Simon's life, as we understand it from church history, ends upside down on a cross. So, and he went through a lot. So there's also a be careful what you ask for sort of deal with that. It did ultimately cost many of these people everything that were the first followers of Jesus down to their blood. But it comes down to the question again of not whether it's better to be Simon Peter or better to be one in the multitude that goes back to his home and follows the Lord. It comes back down to what has Jesus asked you to do? So that's on the occupational side of it. But I would also contend with you from the whole of Scripture that whatever we're doing, Jesus calls us all to be fishers of people. And we know that from his word. And we also know that we're supposed to pray for more people to go out into the harvest that are fully devoted to it in terms of that's what they do pretty much, you know, the vast majority of their time. And we have people doing that, and some people do that, you know, bivocationally, especially in places where you can't just go in, you know, as someone who, you know, preaches the gospel of Jesus, but you have to have, you know, some sort of other work in order just to get into the country or get into the group of people. Um, and so there's nothing, you know, wrong with any of those things. Again, it's what God has called and how he's called. But Jesus said, you know, the, the harvest fields are ripe for harvest, but the laborers are few. And so that's where we could say there's probably over time others from the multitude who were called who just said no to that calling. And so that's another element of the issue. It really comes back down to what are you called to do? And we pray that in our church there would be some who would be called to go and would be called to go to those who are not reached or underreached you know, with the gospel. You know, praying toward that end. You know, even in our, you know, things are like, what do we want to see happen that we believe is God's will for us? But in terms of talking about discipling people and developing people who can disciple people and sending people, you know, we said, hey, let's pray that the Lord would call at least seven people over the next five years to go and to go to those difficult places. You know, one of the cool things about our church and difficult things about our church is we're always sending people one way or the other. You know, it's a transient, part of the community is a transient community. Everybody doesn't stay here. But we are, we're thinking more about, well, how are we sending people out? And where are we sending them to and what are they doing? And is it anything of significance? And perhaps you know, we've maybe missed some opportunities along the way to sin more intentionally, and we don't want to do that moving forward. So we have that opportunity to sin intentionally for the gospel, the sake of the gospel, we want to do that. 
So be praying for that and be praying that God would call people and bring people and raise people up and then that people would be sent out to spread the message of Jesus, especially to those who have very little access to it. And I think if we put ourselves in the shoes of those who have little access to the gospel, it'll cause us to pray more for people to be sent to them. And I think all you have to do for that is to imagine your life without the gospel. Imagine your life without Jesus. And what does that look like? And so that then should inform us and help us to pray and say, Lord, we want more who will be called and who will be sent out as fishers of people. But in that, we must recognize that there are people around us, and they're from all over the world, and they're from all sorts of different walks of life. But in our city, there are people who are hungry for Jesus. And I know it can be so frustrating at times, and I've talked with different ones about you, with you about this even recently, about how people you're trying to reach for the gospel don't seem interested. We'll keep plugging, because one, we don't know how long it's going to take in somebody's life. But also, there are people who are. And so if you let the ones who aren't discourage you from continuing to reach the ones who are, then we lose. So that's where we have to keep on reaching out and keep on loving people. And we're not... You know, there's a similar joy, I think, that, a, I mean, in a very small way, a fisherman has when he catches something. You know, like, I've got a fish, and when you have a person, but you're, you're not like catch, catching like I've captured. It's not that way at all. It's like you have freed. It's, it's actually the opposite. Because the person is already captured from sin. And when you become a fisher of people, like you're freeing people from sin and from slavery and giving them a new life. They're receiving a new life in Christ. And it's for Jesus. And so that makes it all good. So let's move on to verses 12 through 16. It says, It happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And Jesus charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Okay, so let's go back here, and again, we're continuing this authority. Now we've seen Jesus has the authority to call people, call people to follow him and to leave everything else they're doing for that purpose. So Jesus has authority to do that. And now Luke sets it up. It's not necessarily what happens in the next order of events. He's not trying to lay out a strict like time narrative of everything that happens, but he's laying down, again, evidence that your trust is, is right to have your trust in Jesus because look at who he is and what he's done. And so he says that there's this man who has leprosy. And leprosy is something that still exists today, but certainly not common or, you know, really, I've, I've never met anyone with leprosy. And 
you know, our culture or in the United States, but um, it does happen in the world still. But it's a pretty terrible disease, and it causes a losing of feeling in parts of your body, and then people end up getting injured because they don't understand, you know, they don't have that pain. You know, pain um, is really good for us because it lets us know, get your hand off the hot stove or get your hand from out from being crushed. Like, it, you know, those nerve receptors, though they hurt us, are very good for us because they let us know, do something different here. Help your body out. But when a person doesn't have those, then they don't realize the damage that's being done until it's too late. And, and, and it just kind of continues and it can take over. Eventually the disease takes over a whole body and it's, you know, it can be fatal. Um, and so there, and it's also very, very contagious. And so rightly, there were rules and regulations that were even given in the Old Testament ceremonial law about a person having leprosy not being able to be in the mass of the community when the community would come together, you know, even for worship. Like, you couldn't have a person who had leprosy in the middle of that because then that person's contagious and other people are going to get the disease. And so there had to be this, you know, setting aside of the individual, as painful as that was for the friends and family of that person, um, but they had to be in, a, you know, places where there would only be other people with leprosy. And then if, if they were made better, if they were, you know, um, healed from that, they'd have to go to the priest and they'd have to, to show. And then so many days later, they'd have to come back again. It's like going to a doctor and getting checked and then getting rechecked, you know, and making sure that this person is no longer a danger to the rest of the community that would make many other people sick with this life-threatening disease. So it, it makes perfect sense, but there's a lot of pain involved with that, especially on, a, I think, on an on emotional, on a, emotional, on a social, on a mental level. It would be terrible to have this disease and all that would come along with that. But this person has apparently you know, heard of Jesus or heard him teach or seen him or know that word has spread to him about Jesus and what he can do for others. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice with that, he does not doubt the power of Jesus to make him clean. But is it the Lord's will to make him clean? And that's where he's coming and understanding again, we see a person understanding who they are and who Jesus is. And is it the will of Jesus? That means if it's the will of someone, then that means that person is the one with the authority. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus put out his hand and touched him. Now again, an average person isn't going to do this. Because an average person is going to go, I'm not getting leprosy. Average person that's healthy is avoiding people with leprosy and keeping a distance from people with leprosy has been taught to do that from being a child and has, you know, will like always do that. Just self-preservation. Jesus here, you know, he could have just said the word. We see in the scriptures Jesus just saying the word. Jesus not even being in the same place and just saying the word and the person's healed. 
But here, he makes a point to touch. He makes a point to touch. Because he's, he's identifying with this person and who this person is and what this person has been through. You see his love and his, his empathy when he touches this man and says, I am willing, be cleansed. It says immediately the leprosy left him. I mean, his skin became new. Can you imagine that? Powerful. But Jesus tells him, don't tell everybody what I did for you. But go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. Now, again, Jesus does have the authority, and he can just set himself up and say, I'm the king, I'm the high priest, I'm the Messiah, I'm everything. Right here, right now, treat me as such. But he doesn't do that. And he tells him to go to the priest and to show himself, to make an offering. But to do so, you know, it's a testimony for them because obviously they're going to ask him, you know, what, what happened to you? How did you have leprosy and now you, you don't have leprosy? So it's a testimony about Jesus. But it's also a testimony of doing things the proper way at the proper time, in the right order, because at this point, everybody's still under the law. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't fulfilled all the, righteousness, all the righteous requirements of the law by shedding his blood as the sacrificial lamb and as the new high priest. He hasn't done all of that yet. And so at this point, this person that he heals is still under the authority of the Old Covenant, still under the authority of the Mosaic Law. And Jesus respects that. Well, he respects it because ultimately it was, it was his, you know, since he's God, and he gave it you know, in the first place. But he came to fulfill it. He wasn't just saying, this is worthless and this doesn't exist anymore and this, isn't, or this is not important at all or never was important. He doesn't have that approach to it. His approach is that he's going to fulfill it. And when something is fulfilled, it's no longer needed. He's going to fulfill it and replace it with, his, with himself because ultimately Jesus is our new covenant. He is it. Of course, verse 15, however, the report went around him, concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed of him by their infirmities. And the reason that Jesus isn't always promoting that he's healing people or doesn't want people that he heals always promoting that is because, yes, he does that, but that wasn't his primary reason for coming in the first place. His primary reason to coming wasn't to heal everyone of their physical sicknesses. He actually didn't have to come to earth in order to do that. So that wasn't his primary purpose. He's willing to do it in most of the cases. I don't remember any cases where he's not willing to do it. But that's not his primary purpose. Primary purpose 
is he's coming to be the Messiah, to be the sacrificial lamb, to be the savior of the people. His spiritual purpose is greater. His purpose of teaching is greater, and his purpose of training those disciples for three years so that they can do the ministry is, is higher. That's not to downplay the physical healing. It's just to put it in its proper priority because we can have a tendency to put everything physical first, whether it's health or wealth. We need to understand that those things are secondary for Jesus. Those things are secondary in our lives for him. You know, and that's really you know, where the prosperity gospel of you know, God just wants you to be happy and everything really goes wrong is that it's a misplacement of priority. Obviously, G- Jesus here cares about people's physical conditions, but he cares about their spiritual conditions you know, much more so. He cares about things that are eternal more than he does things that are temporal, temporary. Things that are heavenly more than things that are earthly. And so whenever we come to God's word and make it about us and stuff, we've kind of missed the point. Even though God may bless you in incredible ways throughout, and he may provide healing where healing is needed, and he may provide abundant resources where abundant resources are needed. But if we make that the priority, then we, we disrupt the gospel. And that's what Jesus is looking to avoid here. And that's why so often he tells people that he heals, let's just keep this between you and me. You don't need to go tell the world about that. But when the multitudes come, this is, again, a great contrast for us because it says, verse 16, and, and if we get one verse, if we get one thing this morning, maybe this one should be it. It says, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Because when our lives get busier, we all try to do more. When our lives get busier, we say, well, I've got more work to do, and we do more work. And when Jesus' ministry got busier, the busier it got, the more Jesus went off by himself, away from other people, to pray. Many times, he went without the disciples to go pray. He went by himself, with his father, his Jesus, the Son of God, and his Father. And that's it. By himself. Now, obviously, Jesus did not live a life of solitude. He did not become a monk. He did not do, you know, stay by himself all the time. What what was the purpose of this? Communion. You know, he needed it for communion. I mean, in his humanity, remember again, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And in his fully humanness, he, he needs that refreshment. And what do we need? If Jesus needed to go and be by himself and to pray, 
that should be informative to us. Unfortunately, it often isn't. It's not nearly informative enough in my own life, confession. And I need to be reminded of that because when things get busier for me, I tend to do that less. So what happens in your week when things get busy? What goes? Because something goes. Something leaves. There is something that you don't do as much of when your week gets busy. Either you don't watch as much TV or you don't read, you know, just kind of casual reading as much or you don't hang out with people as much or there's, you don't play as much sports or you don't read your Bible as much and spend as much time in prayer. The sad truth is, I think that most of the time, that's the last one there is the first one to go. Are we willing to confess that and admit that? A lot of times, that's the first one to go. But why? Because we don't have to, quote-unquote, disappoint anyone. See what I'm saying with that? We don't have to disappoint anyone because... There's other things that we don't do. Well, somebody feels let down. Somebody gets disappointed. There's a relational cost sometimes to those things. Or the work isn't done at the level that we want it done, perhaps. I'm also just going to argue with you just two things real quick. One is there's a law of diminishing returns. Students, you study for 20 hours straight. Well, you don't. But if you study for 10 hours straight, without breaks, you'll probably do worse on that test. If you took a couple breaks, did something else, went and ran a mile, whatever, and let your brain reset and refresh. But you think, oh, if I put all this time in, then it instantly is going to mean a better result. Time is a really weird thing. More of it doesn't always mean better. Quality is better than quantity in most cases. And sometimes we're, you just got to have quantity. Ditch has to get dug. That's just going to take some time. <coughs> or, I don't know, rent a backhoe. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So sometimes it's about working smarter. But, uh, but bigger point to it, bigger point to it is this, is that the spiritual influences everything else, everything else. And if that's not right, the rest of it doesn't really matter that much. Because it's like, I mean, hey, awesome, you got an A on that chemistry final, but you didn't have a quiet time that week. Yeah, I'm sure God's really, really this like, great job on that chemistry. Great job on that chemistry. You know, it's not that way, but we treat it that way. And I'm not saying that I don't have the same tendency that many of us do in that same regard. I'm preaching this just to myself the same way. So don't say, oh, you're just coming after me or whatever. I'm coming after myself. 
because we need more time with Jesus. And that's got to be the last thing to go. It's got to be the last thing to go. And I'll expose, it's not hypocrisy because I'm telling you, right? I'm telling you. Yesterday, we have a bunch of people at our house, need to clean up, need to do all this different stuff. Kids been sick. You know, earlier we're tired. So yeah, I read, but that's not in the morning, but that's not, I read it. Okay? And it wasn't around about 11 o'clock that I got around to actually getting into it a little bit for my devotions for that day. I just read it in the morning. Well, what did I do that day that was more important than spending time with God? Nothing. Nothing. But you see how it's so easy it is. Oh, we have people, we got this, I'm tired, I got this, blah, blah, blah. And all these excuses and all these things get in the way of what we need most. And what, I'm, what, I, what I don't want to get at with this is some sort of legalism. Oh, you just are being legalistic and you got to do... It's not about that. It's about what's the healthiest thing for your life? What's the healthiest thing for my life? The healthiest thing for my life is time with Jesus every day. That's the healthiest thing for my life. Name something more important for your health as a human being than time with Jesus. I don't think you can. And I can't. Jimbo here is giving me accountability on running, and his phrase to me about you know being busy in the running and everything is, "Did you brush your teeth today?" I'm like, "Yeah, brush my teeth today." Okay, then run. All right, that's running. And running is important, but it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. And yet, again, so many things in our lives will get that place and get that time, that time alone with God. And yet, Jesus himself, he drew into the wilderness. Why did he draw into the wilderness? Because ain't nobody else there. He's in somebody's house, and people find out he's in that house where there's going to be a crowd of people there. And this is the other element of it. We have to take away ourselves with the distractions. And this is why I'm going to, again, I'm going to encourage you, stop having your quiet time on your phone. Because what happens is you get a text message, a Facebook message, an alert, a notification of this or that in that time that's supposed to be just focused you and God. Man, take that thing and turn it on silent and turn it over and put it somewhere where you can't see it and go to a place where a phone's not going to ring and somebody's not going to come in the door. Somebody's not going to bother you. Put away the distractions. Yeah, use that Bible app on your phone when you're sitting there and talking to somebody and need to find a verse. Use it for that. But when you're sitting there having your quiet time, let's use things that aren't going to distract us. But we can turn everything else off. All right. My time's gone. The last story, I'm just going to read these verses, give you two thoughts. 17 through 26. 
Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. A couple of quick points from that. We see two things. One, we see the faith of of the man who was paralyzed, but the faith of his friends. If we can just get our friend to Jesus, he's going to be all right. Man, we got to have that mentality with people. If I can just get my friend, my coworker, my family member, my neighbor, this person who I just met, whoever it is that doesn't have Jesus, to Jesus, Jesus will take care of them. Jesus will, will heal them spiritually. He will take away their sin. He will forgive their sin, his, their sins. That person will be made whole. Here, again, we're talking about the authority as Luke is laying out the authority of Jesus. So he's got the authority to call disciples. He's got the authority to cleanse lepers and to make people ceremonial clean for worship. He's got the authority to forgive sins. And if you have the authority to forgive sins, what do you have? You have all authority. Because only God can do that. That's where the Pharisees and the scribes were right Who can forgive sins but God alone was the correct question. But the incorrect thought was that Jesus was speaking blasphemies, that he wasn't the Messiah, that he wasn't the Son of God. So Jesus knows, imagine this, they're thinking this, and Jesus says, why do you perceive in your hearts? Why do you think this way? Because Jesus knows them, because Jesus knows each person, at their core, at their heart, and there's no fooling Jesus. A person can fool their family members, their husband, their wife, their kids, their whatever. They can fool their friends, their co-workers. I've known some people who've been really good at fooling people. Incredibly good at it. Can't fool Jesus. He knows it. He knows the heart. And so again, he proves, he makes this paralyzed man walk. We don't know how long he had been paralyzed. May have been hurt in an accident or at work or fell off a roof, who knows. But we know he was a man who couldn't walk that now could. man who had been dependent on his friends and on other people to do everything for him. And now he can run on home. He can jump up and down, and he can do it all, and that's awesome. But so much more, his sins 
we're forgiven. So when we put it all together, God wants us to be fishers of people. God has, Jesus has the power and is willing to cleanse people. And our role as followers of Jesus is to take other people to Jesus. To get other people into his presence. And how do we do that? We do that through how we live, the words we speak. Our words and our actions and those things have to go hand in hand. They need to see the reality of Christ in our own lives. And they need to see when we are weak and what we do when we're weak. passage for yesterday was actually Hebrews 4, in the end of Hebrews 4, and again, this is the authority of Jesus we see fully displayed in verse 14. It says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you don't know Jesus yet, this morning Jesus invites you and just invites you to put your faith and your trust in him and to say, Lord, I believe you are able to make me clean, to make me whole, to forgive my sins. Will you please? And Most definitely he will. Most definitely he will. You're just asking. But perhaps you, like me, have known Jesus for a while, a short time, a long time, whatever length of time it is. At that point, you may be strong, you may be weak. If there's weakness, who do we go to? Back to Jesus, he's our high priest. We go back to him, who's able to sympathize with us, because he was tempted like we are. Yeah, remember, he didn't sin, even as we looked at the temptation of Jesus. Michael preached that message on. He passed that test, and he passed every test. But he still understands what it is to be human, what it is to be tempted, and he understands our weaknesses, and he has sympathy for us, and we can go to him with boldness, saying, Jesus, help me. And so maybe this morning, you need to do that. In both cases, the bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus. And that's ultimately why he came. That's what Luke is setting us all up for. You know, we're only in chapter 5, but down the road, he's setting us up for that. And that's why Jesus came. Again, to be the Lamb of God, to be the sacrifice for our sins. And as we take that bread and take that cup, representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, we give thanks and we say, yes, Jesus, you are who you say you are. Please be who you say you are in my heart, in my life. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, please help us this morning. We come to you and through you because the word says we can. So, Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus for us. Father, we thank you that you sent him for the purpose of going to the cross on our behalf.
Father, we pray for those that don't know you yet, that you would convict them and just show them their need for you by your Holy Spirit. For those of us who know you, help us to be bold in coming to you in our weaknesses and help us also to be bold in going to others with the reality of who you are, that we really would be fishers of people, that we would take them to the one who can make them clean, who can forgive them, who can give them eternal life. And Jesus, that's you. So we remember you and we lift your name on high. We thank you this morning. In your precious name, Jesus.